This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Luxury retailer Barney's filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection last week. The company announced it will close stores in Chicago, Seattle, and Las Vegas, as well as shutting down 12 warehouses and concept locations. Barney's has secured $218 million in new financing as it goes through the bankruptcy process and looks for a buyer. It's keeping open its stores in Beverly Hills, San Francisco, Boston, and New York, among others. News of the retailer's financial issues broke last month when Reuters reported the rent for its flagship store on Manhattan's Madison Avenue was nearly doubling from 16 to $30 million a year. The bankruptcy news highlights the issues that even upscale retailers are having trying to remain profitable while maintaining storefronts in desirable areas. Joining us to discuss this, Benjamin Keyes, associate professor in the Wharton's uh, School of Real Estate uh, de- uh, in the Real Estate Department. And also joining us, Tomei Sadari, who's an adjunct professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business, as well as business editor of Luxury, History, Culture, and Consumption. Ben, great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Tommy, great to have you back with us. Thank you. So I guess let's touch on the, the bankruptcy itself, Tommy, and, and part of this is kind of the landscape that some of these luxury retailers are dealing with right now in the fact that uh, that they are having to deal with, as like any other retailer right now, the battle against online. Yes, um, definitely. We've seen a lot of this in New York City, uh, which for years had a very stable landscape, and right now everything is changing and shifting. That means that not only great department stores have disappeared from the um, urban map, but also smaller retailers that simply cannot afford the real estate rents any longer. Ben, I guess the, the real estate side of this, and when you look at the numbers that that Barney's was having to pay, especially here in New York City, now the marketplace in other towns is probably a little bit less, but mm-hmm. still, you're probably seeing the same types of issue with commercial real estate across the U.S. at this point. Yeah, this is a challenge for a lot of retailers. I think there's a little bit of a lack of context in the for the Barney's bankruptcy. It's hard to know whether... $16 million is, is quote-unquote, the right price for yeah. for their rent, and whether $30 million is, is quote-unquote, too much. I think it's notable that they're actually keeping that flagship store open, uh, so they will be paying that higher rent, um, but but sort of claiming that that has had some ripple effects um, for for the broader business. I think it's, it's certainly true that in the desirable locations, as we're seeing these changes to the use of real estate, and we can talk more about uh, WeWork and some of the other uh, players yep. who have been scooping up some of this desirable uh, retail space in the in the sort of prime locations, especially in Manhattan, uh, there's just increased demand for for those types of locations, and you're seeing uh, a rising rents in a lot of these spots. So this is you know a booming period for commercial real estate. We've seen many years coming out of the Great Recession that uh, rents have risen for a lot of retail. Um, in desirable spots. And that's not true of the second tier and third tier malls that are in Mm -hmm. outlying areas, which we've heard so much about their closures. But this is the flip side to that, the places where uh, there is still quite a bit of foot traffic and still a lot of demand for physical space. So, Tom, I, I take us through, if you can, what some of those downstream effects are from a company like Barney's seeing his uh, their rent almost double like this, even in New York City. Yes, um, and, and just to add to what was just mentioned, um, the, the key here is the desirability of the location, which is true, is still uh, very much 
uh, alive and, and it creates a lot of competition amongst retailers to get to these highly desirable spots that then in turn drive the rents high up. But the issue here is the marketing strategy that a lot of these retailers are applying. And the gap is between having foot traffic and having activations that actually convert the desirability to purchases. And I think that this is where a lot of these retailers um, uh, miss out. And this is why we see such a high turnover, even on Madison Avenue, with retailers coming in for 18 months, for three years, and then disappearing from the map entirely. So how much are retailers, and especially in this instance, Tommy, uh, luxury retailers, thinking about that balance between actual store presence and, and, and looking at their online component? I think it's on everyone's mind, but it's very difficult to execute for several reasons. And I think one of the reasons is that uh, in the United States, we have been primarily known as a uh, big market in terms of volume of sales. And a lot of people have been trained either on the trenches, you know, there are people who have been professionals all their lives and very successful in retail, or they have gone through a very traditional type of training in marketing that hasn't made them uh, aware of the nuances of how you activate luxury consumers. And luxury consumers on everyone's mind are these demographics that has a certain amount of money to mm-hmm. spend. And this, in my opinion, is wrong because I dissect the luxury segment in many, many, many sub-segments, and this is where the key activations can happen for the retailers to be successful. So when you look at, at commercial markets, Ben, and obviously I think we understand that New York is kind of in a world of its own exactly. be, because of the value that, that companies and, and people see in New York City, but how different is the commercial market in New York City compared with Chicago, which obviously is also a top 10 market? in this country. I think, you know, the the expectation of Las Vegas or Seattle closing, that may not be as as surprising as maybe, say, Chicago. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, just New York is in another league when it comes to commercial real estate prices in the United States, uh, certainly in the most desirable locations. And and Tommy mentioned this sort of in, in how competitive um, those spaces are when you think about not just for the retail purposes, but for a range of other uh, commercial purposes for the headquarters of financial firms, for a lot of other folks um, who really want to locate in mm-hmm. Manhattan and also want to live in Manhattan. We've seen the rise of the the high-end condo development in parts of Manhattan that previously weren't there over these last eight years. Um, and so I think New York is really special in that way. I think if you look at sort of uh, other cities, um, most of them are going through different kinds of dynamics when it comes to their commercial real estate. Um, very similar in terms of... Uh, Central district um, sort of high traffic areas are still commanding fairly high rents, and we've seen increases in commercial rents uh, steadily over the last eight years or so in, in most um, most downtown markets uh, where we've seen these sort of urban renaissances happening, mm-hmm. big downturns in, in the exurbs. I think this, um, this sort of tension of over competition and sort of who's uh, interested in using the space and, and this point about um, – that Tommy was raising about the activation of how do you get those sales to generate in your location, um, you don't need that same kind of challenge to get people in off of the street when you're an office building, right? People are yeah. going there. Yeah. They're going there to go to work. Yeah. Um, or if you have other things that are more like the kind of experiential um, retail that's that's popping up in a lot of malls that yeah. have been redeveloped. And you think of 
um, the ski slope in the Mall of the Emirates in Dubai. Uh, there are plans for a ski slope in, in the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Yep. There's plans for a ski, sl- uh, ski slope. That's a tongue twister in Miami. So you're seeing these other sorts of ways to try to encourage people to get in the door um, and uh, and come in off the street. And then the question that I think she's much more an expert on is how does that actually convert to sales? So then do you, do you expect then the potential of – in this instance, Barney made Barney's made the decision to keep New York open at the expense of the other mm-hmm. markets that we may see this play out with other retailers moving forward, that they will make the decision to stay in New York because of the foot traffic, because of the the imprint that New York City has at the expense of other markets. So the impact may be in the Chicago's, the Los Angeles's, the Las Vegas and Seattle's as we move forward. Yeah, it seems to me that even despite the big increase in rents, this is a strong signal that Barney sees a lot of value in that flagship store, that it's probably their most profitable physical location. And to what to whatever extent they're going to develop a, a broader online presence, they want to keep that flagship there as as a um, as a way to sort of signal their their presence in the most important market in the U.S. So, Maya, do you think that's going to be the case with with a lot of luxury retailers? Yes, and and if I can uh, take an elitist view, just because we can do it, you know, this is a theoretical discussion. I think um, there is a very big difference between luxury consumers in New York City. Uh, and those in other parts of the country, Chicago, we just mentioned, Seattle, many other uh, locations, where we really do not have the numbers of people who have this very highly educated view of what an object should be like, what a a lifestyle should be like, and where they are um, style setters themselves, because these were the the real customers of Barney's, uh, style setters. The rest of the market goes to Barney's because there are followers. And the United States, and this is what I was alluding to earlier, is that we are basically a very big market in terms of volume, in terms of followers. And this is why the online media is doing so well, because what anyone wants to see is that something is proposed by an influencer, and then we all run and buy it when we're afraid to make a style statement. And that happens usually in big metropolitan areas. New York, of course, is the the um, uh, front runner in that, and that's why all the flagships want to be here. But in this instance, Tommy, you're talking about the the rent almost doubling with New York, and it's almost like Barney's has made the decision, okay, we're willing to pay the extra $14 million a year in New York. We have no problem saying, okay, we're going to cut Chicago, we're going to cut these other towns, and it will basically level out the the amount of rent that they're paying. Without knowing their numbers, I would say that, yes, probably it will level it out. But also they have better chances of recovering in New York City if, going forward, they are um, smarter in all these types of activations and experiences and actually going after the young consumers, namely Generation Z, who are really, really, really young, and millennials. I guess then this really ends up becoming a question of what commercial real estate people are going to be doing moving forward, Ben, in all of these other locations, Mm -hmm. understanding that the potential of these types of stores leaving is maybe growing in the years to come. That's right. It, it opens up two interesting questions. And one is is who we think of New York really competing with. And we've been describing this as a domestic issue and, you know, Barney's closing U.S. stores in exchange for the New York store. 
But if you think about the the framing that, that Tommy just provided and thinking about where are the trendsetters, well, now we're thinking about a global real estate problem where yeah. we're thinking about the comparison of trendsetters in, in Manhattan versus London versus Paris versus Tokyo. Um, and so that's the way in which maybe uh, a sort of more globally oriented real estate uh, investor would be thinking is that now these trendsetter locations are going to be the ones, maybe the only ones that can sustain uh, the types of luxury brands that we've seen for a while in these other cities. And then the second question becomes, well, what happens to these spaces in, in other U.S. cities uh, where they're no longer being used for these luxury purposes? And I think the, this this comes back to the interesting competition between these desirable downtown locations, these luxury Brands tended to locate in in very um, very expensive and very desirable spots uh, in the other major cities in the U.S. and that space that's still in high demand where rents yeah. are high and I think there's going to be an interesting uh, repositioning there when you're thinking about other retail that could move in, um, but you're also seeing the rise of of office um, uh, office uh, demand and the example that for this that I like which is a New York example. Um, is WeWork buying the Lord & Taylor flagship store. So in yeah. February, they closed that deal um, at 424 Fifth Avenue. It's an incredibly desirable spot in the heart of Manhattan. Uh, and they're converting that into this flexible office space that WeWork has, has been rolling out everywhere. And so it'll be interesting to see whether um, a, a, uh, a firm like WeWork is, is lining up to purchase some of these spaces or rent out some of these spaces in other cities around the U.S. I, I would imagine, Tommy, that uh, this, to a degree... It is a little bit of a of a yellow light flashing for retailers that that Barney's makes this decision, and as Ben mentioned, uh, you know the old Lord and Taylor building in Manhattan as well. That that this is something that that a lot of retailers are going to be thinking about uh, moving forward. Absolutely. Uh, if we think about department stores in particular, we need to remember that this exact model of floor after floor after floor was implemented in the late 19th century. So it had a pretty good run of about 150 years. Mm -hmm. And here we are in almost 2020, um, um, having made tremendous advances in technology that has educated us and, and, and trained us to, to shop in a different way. So the concept of the department store needs to change. So I don't think that department stores will go away. I think it's good to um, uh, decrease their footprint in that transitional period in terms of real estate, but they have to go back to the drafting board and think about who they are and what is their DNA concept and then try to scale that up in all the um, states that this is pertinent in the United States. But do it not in terms of volume. So I question the uh, scaling up process that has been so detrimental to so many retailers. And had they gotten that correctly, they wouldn't have to fight the real estate um, uh, um, peak right now in terms of prices. I think we, we, we expect, Tommy, that when we see higher prices at, at just in general across retail, that there is something that is being passed down by the company to the consumer. But in this instance, how much does the luxury consumer worry about higher prices when they see them, when they go into a particular store, does it, does it not affect them as much as say somebody that may have gone into a Toys R Us in the past or, or another retailer that has had issues? 
No, I, I think uh, the luxury consumer today is, is very uh, sophisticated. They do a lot of research. We have all sorts of uh, ways of doing that online. Um, and, and so they're very well informed, and they're, they, too, seek value when they purchase something. So we always need to question this equation between price and value and what is the other denominator that comes in between that makes me want to purchase something. Is it the quality of the experience? Is it the quality of the service that someone is providing to me? Is it the quality of the convenience that I'm getting when I'm purchasing something? So I need to close a gap between um, higher price and value that I retain as a consumer. And when you think about markets, Ben, New York, you mentioned before, is kind of in a league of its own, but there have been various stories over the last couple of years that have talked about the volatility in the commercial real estate market in, in New York City. Yeah, absolutely. When you do, when you have these high prices, high rents that you're paying, uh, you have to be successful right out of the gate. And it's very difficult to sustain a retail operation or, or a restaurant or a lot of other businesses, for that matter, uh, when rents are high. And this is uh, you know, frequently why you see um, you know, only the types of large chain stores or some of the other um, you know, large luxury players in the most desirable locations, a mom-and-pop uh, retail chain or a mom-and-pop restaurant just can't afford uh, those kind of rents to, to establish themselves over time. And so um, you absolutely see that, that this leads to a lot of volatility. And I think so coming back to Tommy's points earlier about the sort of changing dynamics around um, some of these firms trying to find their way in, mm-hmm. in a more complicated uh, economic setting where, where you're competing with e-commerce in, in, a, in, a, new, uh, in a new and different way. Um, I think that doesn't give firms a lot of time to uh, to sort out any issues they might be having. They need to hit the ground running and succeed right away. But do you even see, and I think with some of the smaller retailers, you will see the opportunity to try and go look for a better price you know, for one's particular business. Do you see that actually going on even with some of these luxury retailers looking at what that bottom line price is and saying, if, if you're not going to give it to me, I'm going to go look someplace else? That's a great question. I, I haven't seen any good uh, analysis of this. I think you certainly see this when you look at the, the where sort of spatially things like restaurants and other retail corridors are, are popping up. And you, right. you do see this moving out of some of the most desirable areas. But I think that and this is something that Tommy may know better than I do, but my sense is that luxury brands really do tend to p- place a premium on their location and that their their consumers uh, tend to go look for them in sort of a, a concentrated luxury area. And so if you don't have that Soho address or that, you know, that specific Fifth Avenue address, uh, you know, that might be a difficult thing for um, – uh, for the retailer in terms of getting the foot traffic that they'd expect. But I think, Tommy, it, it may even be an instance uh, of the brand may be able to carry some of the strength here, but once that company sets roots down in a particular location in New York City, that expectation that that store is going to be there is already built into the consumer. Yes, that is absolutely correct. But I think because of what you mentioned of the value of the brand um, and how important that is to the consumers, I think that the brands can actually uh, navigate that problem by moving in side streets. And I'm talking about New York City that I know well. I don't know if it applies in other uh, big cities. Uh, so let's say we are still in, in the Soho area or Upper East Side, but we're not on Madison Avenue. We're not on um, 
uh, on Prince Street, where on a side street, mm-hmm. where rents can be a little lower, where the experience is going to be very similar to what I have been offering to my client for the last 20 years. And a lot of brands have been doing this, actually. A lot of uh, companies um, that are very prestigious and heritage brands that we had on Madison Avenue have actually moved from Madison Avenue to side streets, let's say 64, 65, 66, because you, you can afford a little bit um, better the rents over there. But there's also the expectation in a town like New York City, Tommy, uh, of of the uh, of the person coming in from Paris or London or Germany, wherever that might be, who is that shopper. And that's in part why, at least with New York City, I would think Manhattan is, is the most desirable location because you see so many more travelers in that area. Yes, Manhattan for sure. But this is interesting how you asked the question. You spoke about a traveler from Germany and uh, Paris and, and, and whatever other European city. I think this is exactly where the problem is today. We have people who have been consuming luxury for years who are actually tired of seeing that sort of ex- overexpansion, which has become a little vulgar in the luxury market, mm-hmm. and want to find their beloved brands in more intimate environments. And then you have the other type of luxury consumer who is coming from um, new wealth countries, um, um, South America, Asia, Russia, and they go primarily to Manhattan for the Madison Avenue experience. Again, these are two different types of luxury consumers. Mm -hmm. and, And a brand needs to think and calculate how many of those are going to be return clients and so do I care about my long-term investment in those clients, even if I have to sacrifice a location? Or am I here to capitalize on food traffic from tourists who are going to pass through New York City once or maybe twice in their life? And that has such an interesting implication for, for real estate. So uh, if, you're, if you're willing to, uh, to take some of those uh, high rents and to stay on the Madison Avenues of the world, uh, then you're going to draw in one type of, of consumer potentially and sort of orient your entire uh, outlook around that that particular um, uh, slice of the of the luxury consumer market. If you're willing to move maybe just around the corner for a slightly cheaper rate or maybe a few blocks away, yeah. uh, then you may be targeting this other slice. And so it's it'll be interesting to see, I think, how different brands uh, approach that trade-off. I, I was thinking, you know, in, in going to New York City so many times, not that this was a, a luxury store, but when you think about product and placement and, and location, FAO Schwartz, mm-hmm. for, for how many yes. decades, was was an icon in, in midtown Manhattan, Tommy? Yes. Uh, I mean, this is a great example, actually. And, and here... Um, that requires even a more uh, extensive discussion because a lot of things happen in the um, toy industry and how uh, people buy toys, right? So uh, that takes us a little bit away from what we're discussing. But people need icons because where we had FAO shorts, we have Apple stores now. So the desirability of the location for this high-end experience, something really extravagant and beautiful and unique, is still there for the consumers, even if they're tourists or even if they're the city's residents. Uh, It's just that our interest has shifted from specific product categories to other product categories. Ben? I think we're in such an interesting time right now in this context. I mean, e-commerce is still only about 15% of total retail sales. Uh Uh, sometimes we talk about it like it's 99%. Uh, 
Um, and it, it feels it, like it, it at it, times. It does when you walk uh, when you walk down the street and see the delivery trucks uh, dropping off the Amazon boxes. And and I think this longer perspective that Tommy raised about department stores being developed in the the early 1900s. Um, you know, they faced competition from from the mail order catalogs. They faced sure. competition from the Sears catalog and yeah. had to adapt to that. And and then you've seen this sort of evolution over time of the big box stores slicing away uh, some of the departments. And for a long time, people thought, well, no one will buy clothes online. You need to go to the store to, to try them on. And now yeah. we've seen uh, a huge amount of, of um, clothing purchases moving online. So I think we're at a really interesting stage, and I think that that is going to have long-term implications for how we shop and, and how space in, in these downtowns is used. Tommy, just a little bit of time left. I wanted to get your opinion on the future of Barney's because of this. Obviously, they filed for the Chapter 11. They still have some of the stores open. I think a lot of people are who know the brand and follow it are wondering whether or not it's headed towards Toys R Us or if it's going to be able to find a buyer and be able to keep some of its stores open. Well, you see, um, I, I think there will be a buyer uh, because uh, people crave for what Barney's has to offer. But the trick here is um, what I said earlier. Are these buyers trained to operate within the luxury market? Because if your private equity investor is forcing you to have results uh, every quarter, the same way it would happen if you were a publicly traded company, you cannot do it and you will fail again. Mm-hmm. If you're a private equity investor who understands how luxury works and knows how to segment the market correctly, they will give you a longer uh, runway to actually implement the strategy and be a winner. But it's not going to be in three or five years. It's going to be in 10 years. Tommy, thanks very much for joining us on the phone. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. Great seeing you. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Th- thanks very much. Benjamin Keys uh, from here at the Wharton School in the Real Estate Department. Tomei Sidari, who's an adjunct professor at NYU at the Stern School of Business and also business editor of Luxury, History, Culture, and Consumption. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 